And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to continue our study of the prodigal son, and I want to begin reading at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Before we read from God's holy and precious word, let's ask his blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, do bless us as we read this text of the prodigal son, as we, Lord, as I open it up, Lord, we pray that it would be glorifying to your goodness and greatness, Lord, your amazing grace, the joy you have in seeing sinners reclaimed and reconciled to you and your son. Now, Father, open this text up, apply it to our hearts, help each and every one here this morning wrestle with the details. Lord, let us look into it like a mirror and let us find ourselves and let us see, O oh Lord, what your will is for us. Lord, first and foremost, may we truly rejoice and have great joy over the reclaiming of any sinner. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would take this text, burn it into our minds, burn it into our hearts, and cause the gospel to be very precious to us today and forever. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to begin reading, brothers and sisters, at verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine." And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was given him anything or given anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? And I will get up and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And but the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a couple of years, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes? You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for your brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated, please. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we want to focus upon the perspective of the Father, at least examine the Father, and hopefully walk away this morning with this head and heart full of the glory that we literally possess in being reconciled to an amazing God. That's the goal this morning, is to broaden and expand our view and understanding of God. It's obvious that the two crowds that Jesus is addressing or dealing with had skewed perspectives of who God is and what God is doing, if you will. In verse 1 and 2 of the chapter sets the context for these three parables, the parable of the prodigal son being the climax of the teaching itself. The tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus. Now, they weren't coming for just common fellowship. The text tells us that they were coming to listen to him. They were coming for his instruction. We confessed this morning that one of the offices that Jesus holds is that of a prophet. Jesus is the divine declarer of God and the will of God. And they were coming to hear how they might be cleansed and reconciled to God. That's the good news. That is the gospel. How can sinners be reconciled to a holy and just God? These notorious sinners, tax collectors, and the text just says sinners. They don't have to be convinced that they are wayward and rebellious. They don't have to be convinced at all that they are not right with God. They know they are distant from him, but they want to be made closer. They want to have a relationship with him. They want to be brought into his presence. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're coming to hear how that can happen. And of course, the other son, if you will, represented in the older son are those scribes and Pharisees who are blind. They're blinded by their own hypocrisy their own bitterness, and they are complaining and offended that Jesus is having anything to do at all with these offensive, notorious sinners. It is clear that our Lord is using this story of the father and the two sons to highlight this occasion. This morning, our focus is upon the reconciling father. The father in this story is a reconciler. The emphasis, or at least the obvious one, in this story, as in the other two, is that there is great rejoicing when a sinner comes home. Great rejoicing. Great celebration as demonstrated from the shepherd finding the lost sheep, from the woman finding the lost coinage, and from the father who has reclaimed a son that was considered dead but now made alive. What a story. I'm afraid oftentimes we read these stories and we don't give it enough thought and we would not even glean what the listeners of Jesus glean to it because those who are listening to these stories, these parables, they are getting it. They understand exactly the emphasis that Jesus is making. Meaning, at least for my point at this time is that these, the scribes and Pharisees would know exactly that the older son is represented, well, is representing them. Now, we're going to look at this reconciling father in three ways this morning. Three ways. There are going to be three ways we look at 
the Father's desire to reconcile sinners to himself. The first one is going to be the Father's goodness. The Father's goodness. The second observation we're going to look at is the Father's grace. And then the last one for this morning is going to be the Father's joy. So we're going to look at his goodness, his grace, and his joy. Now, as we begin to look at the Father's goodness, we see it displayed in the story in that he is a great benefactor. He is a, he's a giving father. He's a generous father. He is a father that, that is, is ready to provide all of the provisions that his boys need and desire and want. We see that in the beginning of the story. It sets the stage, if you will, when in verse 12, when the younger one, for nefarious reasons, he wants to fulfill his lust, but he comes to his father and demands what is his. And the father divides up his estate and gives the young boy his portion We see with the older boy, the older son, as the father goes out to plead with his older son to come in and celebrate the the reconciliation of his younger brother. In verse 31, he says to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. What do we see there? We see the father's graciousness, his goodness, his provision, willing to give to his boys all that they possibly need for life and even their own enjoyment. Now, you you might want to jot this down in your notes because as you look at these two boys, as we examine them, as we look into this story to sort of find out where we are, where we fit in and how it might be applied to us, the younger boy, the I mean, the, the prodigal, he's the prodigal. He's the one that went and squandered his inheritance. He went and, and that's what the word prodigal addresses, his wastefulness, his extravagant wastefulness. He spent it all. Nothing left. There was not even enough money left to buy him a Happy Meal. Nothing. He had to scrounge like a poor, poor beggar from the trough of animals anything he might even eat for food. This is how he has impoverished himself. Beautiful, ugly picture of a sinner who has squandered all of the good things of God for their own lusts. You take the good thing. Sinners take the good things that God has provided and turns them ugly. He makes them ugly and useless. You can see that even the younger boy, as we look at the goodness of the father, as we begin to examine it, the younger boy just rejects the father's goodness. Give me what's mine. I mean, you can see the demand. It's ugly. It's, it's arrogant. It's, it's in the father's face. I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me what is mine so I can enjoy it now. It's all about him And the father accommodates that. He gives to the boy, and the boy goes off to, well, squander and fulfill his, squander the wealth and fulfill his lust. So he sort of rejects the goodness of the father. But the boy, the younger boy, knows the father is good. How do we know that? How do we know that the younger boy knows the father is good? Because he comes to him and demands his inheritance, first of all. Right out of the text, Father, give me what's mine. I believe he knew the Father would do that. But there's, a, there's another thing here. I mean, the boy goes away and he's like, I don't, I don't want this life. I don't want this covenant life. I don't. He's reject, he rejects God's covenant. 
And he rejects God's covenant people and he goes off, as the text says, to a distant land, far away. I don't have to see or think about these things any longer. He rejects it. He's a rejecter of the good things of God. But now what about the older boy? Well, the older boy is not a rejecter of the good things of God. It's worse than that. And make sure you put this in your notes. The older boy denies the goodness of the father. He denies the goodness of the father. You see, keep in mind the two groups that began the chapter. Keep in mind the context these tax collectors and notorious sinners had rejected the covenant. They rejected the good things of God. And they're coming back now and they're, they're questioning Jesus, not, not in a bad way, but the questions are, how do we, how, how can we be made right before our father that we've rejected? The older boy doesn't reject the goodness of God. He stays in the home. He's always been there. I mean, he looks to be the religious one. He looks to be the, the true son of the covenant, if you will. But he, in his heart, is denying the very goodness of God and is revealed right there in 28 and 29. He becomes angry at what? The provisions given to the younger boy. And then in verse 29, he says, but he answered and said to the father, look, for so many many years I've been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me, look, not even a little billy goat. You're stingy. You've been stingy with me. The older boy denies the goodness of the father. Which one is worse? The one that went off to a very distant land to sow his wild oats, to live like a heathen, to live as if there is no God, that there is no accountability, that, that life is nothing more than what we have from between birth and death and that's it, so live it up? Or is it the one that sat under sacrifice and covenant, sacrifice and covenant and worship, lived in the very presence of the Father and all the while bitter in his heart, all the while angry in his heart, Not knowing the father, but denying the very goodness of his father. Which one's worse? The tactic of Satan, beloved, is to cause God's people, those who profess Christ, to question the goodness of God. Always, always. That's the beginning of so many sinful seasons is the questioning of God's goodness. That's what Satan did when he came to Eve in the garden. He questioned the goodness of God. He brought doubt to the goodness of God. Oh, God's withholding from you. God isn't really giving you what he says he's giving you. And he cast doubt upon the goodness of God. And it was just enough for them to be duped by it. Oftentimes, beloved, it may be that when someone begins to want or desire things or to believe that life may not be giving them their fair portion, their due portion and whatnot, that when they begin to question the goodness of God, they begin that downward spiral, becoming bitter of their circumstances, their situation, their hardships. You, you, you see this in the text, the, the hatred, the, the animosity, the bitterness of the, the older boy, the older brother. And you even see that directed to the father. No doubt the scribes and Pharisees would have seen that that was 
Jesus poking a finger at them. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're offended that these sinners are coming to Jesus and asking how they might be cleansed and reconciled to the Father and they're complaining about it, demonstrating their own bitterness, demonstrating their own deadness and coldness of heart, demonstrating that they are not those who reject God's goodness, but those are the ones who live before God and denies his goodness. See, they believe they deserve these things. Is that not what the... Is that not what he confessed? I've done all these things. I, look, I've served you for many years. I've never neglected a command, and yet you've never given me as much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What is he saying? He says, I deserve this celebration that you're giving to this wayward son. I deserve this. And you're giving it to him. You're squandering this on him. I mean, he's really judging his father. You see, beloved, not as, as we look at the parable and as we consider our relationship with our heavenly father, it's not that just that God is good, but God does good. It's not, I won't say it again. It's not that just that God is good. He is. We would confess that God is great. God is good. But God does good. I mean, who would deny his goodness even in creation? As Jesus dealt with this on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, listen, does not the heavenly father cause it to rain upon the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous? And yet harvest comes to both? Is that not God's goodness? Is it not God's goodness that even pagans can love each other, enjoy children? Yes. But what about God's people who have that, that supreme favor and goodness? And we're going to see that when we look at God's grace. But, beloved, follow the train of thought here. These are those covenant people of God, those who have rejected it and those who live in it denying it. Who come and sit in worship service after worship service, sing the psalms, sing and, and, and hymn to God these beautiful prayers over and over and over, and have these rote um, uh, expressions of, of God and all of these things, and yet all the while their hearts are cold and dead and denying that the Father is good and good to them. It's a, I mean, it is a very strong condemnation to the scribes and Pharisees who are complaining about these tax collectors and sinners. Turn to Ephesians 1. We see this goodness of God, this ex at least expressed in what we call this loving kindness, or if you will. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in Love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. That, that phrase, kind intention, can be interpreted as his divine goodness. His goodness. God is good and God does good. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. 
Now, this is a great motivator, I hope, for us all. That is, not only are we looking at that our God is good, but our God does good to us, particularly as we profess him, particularly as we live in, under, in and under the expression of his saving graces, if you will. But look at verse 7 of chapter 7 of Matthew. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and, who, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Beloved, listen to me. The Father is good. His goodness is great toward you. Not only in this creation that speaks for itself, I should not have to address those things. You should already be calculating those things even in your own mind. But let's talk about the spiritual sense that God has put you in the environment, in that covenant of grace, that, ex- that, that external covenant where there are what? Where there's the preaching of the gospel, where there's prayers for the salvation of sinners, where there is, is the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where there is the taking of communion, where there is this whole environment of the means of salvation. He has put you in this environment for you to not only acknowledge that he is good, but that he is good to you. Amen. He's good to you. Not so that you might live in this environment and challenge that goodness How would you challenge the goodness? What would it look like? Well, complaining about sinners when they come to Christ. Complaining that that those that you don't think are worthy of salvation, coming to salvation, that there's a group of people out there notorious and they don't deserve to be saved. That's a sign that you're embittered. It's a sign that you're not thankful. It's a sign that you don't really believe that your heavenly father is good to you. You look around and you think, well, why are all these sinners prospering? And why are God's people prospering? And I don't. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you this. The denial of of the goodness of God towards you will be the, the gate that opens up a host of other sins to you. That one sin will open the closet door and it will allow multiple ugly sins to infiltrate your heart, and you will, in time, become that hypocritical, embittered person. Because all you're thinking about is what you do not have. What someone else is enjoying, what you do not, instead of what you do have. I've said this before, and I've said it in other contexts. Start with what you have. Start there. Practice thanking God for where you are. Start there. There's no need in looking beyond that for the goodness of God. It's right in front of each and every one of us. Now, that moves us to our second point, and that is the Father's grace. Well, we could call it amazing grace, couldn't we? Because it is amazing. It's not that the Father in the story did not have 
a right to tell the younger son, you have already received what is yours. You, there's nothing else for you here. Been perfectly just to do that. The younger boy, the prodigal, was undeserving. And that's what grace is. Grace is that which is extended and favor given to the ones who are undeserving of that favor. That's why salvation is gracious. For every sinner is undeserving of God's grace. The, the, the point that Jesus is making with the two sons is that one of them comes to that knowledge. One of them comes to his senses and he realizes, I'm undeserving. I am unworthy of being called my father's son. Well, not the older one. The older one, again, believes, well, he deserves that title. Not only that he deserves the title, but he deserves all of the celebration and the accolades that the father has given to the younger. He believes that all of that should go to him. And brothers and sisters, it's impossible to recognize grace. It's impossible to enjoy grace when you think you're deserving of grace. The younger son comes to his senses and what do we see? We see him rehearsing his speech in verse 19. He, or verse 18 says, I will get up, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I mean, there is this now sense of this young prodigal boy understanding of his unworthiness and what God's grace really is. That's the beginning, isn't it? of that saving work that the Spirit does in every awakened soul. He rehearses this speech and when he sees his father, we see this grace in verse 20 as his father runs out to meet him. The boy is undeserving of such of such a, a welcome home, isn't he? He's not worthy of that, but yet the father does it. And he goes to rehearse what he's, he goes to say to the father what he's rehearsed all along the way on his trip back home. But what does the father do? The father looks at the slaves in verse 22. He says, quickly bring out the best robe, not a robe, the best robe, and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. All undeserving all God's grace, all unmerited. The young boy deserved chastisement and he deserved what he had earned, which is poverty, spiritual poverty. But the father is full of grace and he doesn't, he doesn't hear he doesn't even listen to the young son say, listen, father, I'm unworthy. Just make me a slave. Just make me as one of your hired men. No, you are my son, your family. And the picture of God redeem, redemption of sinners and adopting these sinners into his family making them sons and daughters. These rebels making them sons and daughters. The story clearly pictures this amazing grace in that the father will have none of making the boy a slave. But the status of a son is his, unmerited, undeserved, but graciously given and granted. What a picture. And there would be 
like these scribes and Pharisees, those that would sit back and judge the Father for his graciousness. Become the Father's judge. Beloved, we have the opportunity and the privilege this morning not only to reflect and meditate upon the goodness of God and his acts of goodness, but also his grace. You see, beloved, who are, who are those saved here this morning? Only those who have come to their senses. If you're here this morning and you've never come to your own the, the awareness of your own poverty, of your own rebellion, of your own rejection of God's goodness. If you've never come to that place that you've recognized that you, you're, you're not worthy to be numbered in the kingdom of God. You're not worthy to be numbered with the people of God. You're not worthy to be called a son. If you've not come to that, beloved, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. That's the point Jesus is making here. Who are my people? My people are not these hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. My people are those that have come to their senses who have rejected this lifestyle and now they want reconciling with God. They want communion with God. They want to be washed and made clean. They want fellowship with God. They want to leave their old life and now be seated at God's table and family. Those are the Christians. I think one of the reasons this parable is so powerful is because this home describes so many of our own homes. We have the, those who are loose in their ethics and morality, and we have those who are hypocritical in their criticism of others. And both are in great need of God's salvation. Both. Both are in need of coming to their own senses and, aware, and, and becoming aware that they are unworthy to be the children of God, that they are unworthy to be the sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters, it is God's amazing grace as displayed in this text. And notice, even as the father pleads with the son, notice how the son rejects him. He will not go in. He will not even allow himself to celebrate with his father. He remains outside, but notice how the father, he's such a reconciling father. Notice how he goes, just like he ran after the younger boy. What does the father do? He goes out to plead with his older son. Oh, that's our, that's, what a picture of our God. Who goes out to meet a sinner where they are. And to give this older boy a chance to what? Come to his senses. And he doesn't. In the, in the story, he does not. There's nothing in the story that lets us believe that he came to, well, his, his own spiritual poverty. Which rightly sort of describes, descri describes in the Pharisees here, doesn't it? It, it it is a picture of, of they're, they're almost beyond salvation because they can't see their need. They can't see their poverty, their spiritual poverty. He tells the older boy, I mean, in light of this gospel, all that I have is yours. That statement right there should have brought the older boy to his knees. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I have sinned against you. I have judged you to be harsh and critical. I have judged you to be a foolish father. Forgive me because now I see the abundance of all that you have and all that you extend out to all who believe and trust in you. That's yours. 
that is yours. It's ours. It's the whole people. It's the whole church. All of that blessed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All of those who come to their, their awakened in their, their senses and the spirit works in them. That, that ability to see their poverty and then they reach out in faith and cling to Jesus Christ for their salvation. And the Lord Father robes those in the white garments of Christ's righteousness. What a picture. Well, the last and the most obvious probably of the, all the three is the Father's joy. The Father's joy. Brothers and sisters, this joy that the Father has over the reclaiming of one sinner is profound. Profound. It's profound because it's so undeserved. It's profound because of the objects that that God's Joy that, that God's goodness and God's grace is, is, is poured out into those who are so unworthy of it. It's profound, beloved, that all of heaven rejoices with the Father. That all of the heavenly hosts rejoices along with the Father when one sinner is reclaimed and comes home to God. I wonder if we have become so legalistic and so legal-minded and, and, and so, so about ourselves that we have a hard time grasping and understanding this profound joy. Now, brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. How you see God is how you will live your life. If you think gosh is harsh and critical, you're going to be a very hard person to get along with. But if you see God as a reconciling God, a God that's, that, that wants to be known as the one that celebrates the homecoming of a sinner, you're not going to have problem, a problem being joyful in worship. You're not going to have a problem when when people come into the service and under the preaching of the gospel, the Lord wakes them up and they profess Christ as their savior. You will rejoice with them, whatever their background, whatever their circumstances, you will begin to rejoice when sinners come home. But there's a there's a, a, a profundity that I want to leave us with that is worthy of this next week of meditation. It's, it's, the, it's the joy that our Father had in reclaiming sinners by sending his own son to the cross. You see that our father was so desirous to reclaim sinners that before the foundation of the world, he determined to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. That his son would come as we, as we sang in the hymn this morning, his son would come and put on human flesh and walk as a person, walk as a human to be subject to all of the uh, infirmities of this life and then even to that journey and that death on the cross. All the shame, all, all, all that went along with his ministry to the death on the cross. That's profound. Let me, let, me, let me show you. Let's, let's go, to, he, go to Isaiah 53. I want you to get this picture of this joy that the Father has. 
Let's just begin reading at verse 3 because I think just reading the text and you making marks and notes give you something to pray over and to look at later. But look at verse 3. says, this is the prophecy is related to Christ who would come. He said, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, submitting of God and afflicted. Who? Remember when Jesus was on the cross. This joy, this profound joy that the Father has in reclaiming sinners is expressed in even in Jesus when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What he had to go through in order for the sinners to be reclaimed is profound. And yet the Father rejoices over these things. Verse 5, and he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus didn't deserve that death on the cross. He was innocent. All that he bore All that he was subject to was for us, the reclaiming of sinners. He was assigned, the grave was assigned with the wicked, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him and put him to grief, for he would render himself as a guilt offering, and he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What's the point? The point is this profound joy that's expressed in these three parables and particularly as it culminates and climaxes in the parable parable of the prodigal son, beloved, is all grounded upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that saving goodness, that sovereign grace of God, that joy that heaven has over the coming home of just one sinner is all grounded upon the afflictions and the suffering and the sorrows of Christ. So that you and I can celebrate this morning. So that we can be joyful. So that we can sing praise God and hallelujah so that we can do all of these things, so that we could sit around and just have thanksgiving parties and celebration of God's goodness and grace, all because of the suffering of his own son. The depth of the father's joy in this parable, beloved, is unspeakable. It's unspeakable. Because the father was willing to send his son into the world to pay a debt he didn't owe for a whole bunch of sinners that are undeserving of it. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Look at verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Beloved, 
the joy of our Father is a profound joy. It is deep. It is rich. And I would even say this, beloved. It's effectual. It's effectual. It has an effect. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you've come to your senses and you've come to that place of your spiritual poverty and you've cried out to your heavenly father who has granted to you the, the, the righteousness that is Christ's righteousness and has given it to you as your own. That joy, beloved, moves you to live a life that is becoming of one who has been brought home, who has had a homecoming, who's been robed in, who's been given the new and clean robe, a ring on the finger and sandals on the feet, and there is a celebration. That God did not spare his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him but have everlasting life. So brothers and sisters, there are three things. God's goodness, it's great. And God's grace, it's amazing. And God's joy, it's profound. So I ask you the question, can those who have rejected the goodness of God ever be reconciled to him? Yes, they can. The prodigal son's the picture of it. I invite you, brothers and sisters, if you're wayward, come home. Come to the Father. Christ has taken those sins to himself. And he has borne the wrath of Almighty God so you don't have to. Come home. Repent of your sins. And put your faith in Christ. And then rejoice over his goodness, his grace, and his profound joy that he has in saving sinners just like us. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come, we have gathered this morning, we've come to bless your name, but Lord, we've been blessed by you. You have, Lord, shown us this beautiful picture of a reconciling father of a father who wants to save, a father who is good and who is extending out that salvation to undeserved sinners. Lord, calling all who would listen, Lord, to repentance and faith. Oh, Father, let no one here this morning be like the Pharisees, unable to see their poverty, unable to see, oh, Lord, their dire need of salvation. Lord, they're blinded by their own hypocrisy, bitterness. Father, let us be like the, the prodigal son, the wayward sinner. Lord, if there's one here, Lord, who, is, who has, Lord, gone after these lusts, Lord, and no, Lord, you know about it. Lord, let them come to themselves. Lord, send your spirit Give them life, life everlasting, and make them your sons and daughters. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.